Thanks so much for tuning in to the Mooney Ponds Baptist Church Podcast. Here we upload our weekly teachings that happen every Sunday at our 10 a.m. service. If we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out to us and check out our website at mpbc.org.au. Good morning, everybody. It's great to see everybody here today singing and worshipping the Lord today. So I have two Bible readings for this morning. The first one is from the New Living Translation, and it's Psalm chapter 19, verses 7 to 11. The instructions of the Lord are perfect, reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The commandments of the Lord are right, bringing joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are clear, giving insight for living. Reverence for the Lord is pure, lasting forever. The laws of the Lord are true, each one is fair. They are more desirable than gold, even the finest gold. They are sweeter than honey, even honey dripping from the comb. They are are a warning to your servant, a great reward for those who obey them. The second reading is from the New International Version, and it's 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Well, thank you, Hilary. I feel really excited to be here this morning, and I hope you feel that as well. Uh, I don't know why I sort of got up. I wasn't feeling excited when I got up. I get up pretty early on a Sunday morning, but uh, just as the morning's gone on, I've just been really excited to be here with you and uh, just to be part of the worship this morning. So I want to pray. I want to thank the Lord for that. Lord, I want to thank you that you're here with us by your Spirit that we've been able to worship this morning, we've been able to come together, to meet together uh, as a community of people who follow Jesus. Lord, it's hard following you today in this world and uh, there's so many things going on, so many seeds of doubt that are thrown at us, so many acts of craziness that disturb us. But I know... (laughs) from my experience of you and from your word, that you are with us always, that you're with us right now through your spirit. Lord, I pray that you'd move us as a community, that we might hear you collectively and that we might act upon what you tell us. Lord, I pray that you'd minister to people here this morning who are feeling fragile. Your word tells us that a uh, smouldering wick you do not work out, do not snuff out. This is the suffering of, of the servant or a, or a bent reed. You do not break off, Lord. Some of us feel that way this morning, that we're just smouldering. We're, we're bent over a little bit. But we know that you can restore us. You can transform us. That you can actually give us hope in a, a world that's feeling and, and feeling help and hopeless. Lord, revive us as we've just sang. Pour your spirit out on us this morning, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, we're continuing on our series 
uh, which is uh, towards belief. We're looking at belief blockers. What are things that stop belief? What are things that sap our belief? And uh, last week we looked at suffering. Where is God in suffering? And uh, that seems to be a big uh, problem today where people go, where is God in my suffering? But today, there are a lot of claims made about the Bible. So today we're talking about challenging the false claims about the Bible. Uh, but today in our information-rich world, we're actually bombarded all the time, aren't we, by sound bites, by opinion uh, pieces, by news columns, by sort of things that come to us on Facebook about everything from coffee to cryptocurrency. And, uh, you know, so much information that's coming at us, it's really hard to know whether those cryptocurrency things I bought were really, really real. Not that I bought any, but uh, I don't even know what they are. So, um, but how do you know what's reliable, what's trustworthy, what's true, what's unbiased today? For example, it's possible to read an article in one week uh, extolling the benefits of coffee and the next week telling us that uh, one cup of coffee a day is way too many. (laughs) You're with me, George, I know that. So sorting out what is fact and what is fiction, what is truth and what are lies is actually a full-time job today, isn't it? In fact, it's become so difficult that even Google are helping us out these days because they actually are the people who are actually pumping the world full of different, uh, different information, I should say. But they even have a fact checker. There's a Google fact checker that you can actually put things into to see if they're true or false. And I'm not sure uh, how true or accurate that is. But anyway, we've got these sorts of fact checker things going on. But before we look at the uh, true or false claims about the Bible... I want to actually do something else. I know that you're all very astute people here this morning and probably never need a fact checker. But uh, I thought I would put your astuteness to the test, first of all, to see how well you go at recognising whether a claim is fact or fiction or truth or false. So if you've got your, your smartphone on you, please pull it out because I want to use the Mentimeter this morning. I actually sent a link on, uh, on your... On your uh, Mooney Pond's WhatsApp page, if you've got that, or you can use the QR code behind me to log on to today's Menti. And uh, I want to just go through a few quick um, claims to get our minds working before we engage with some robust, uh, robust um, thinking about whether the Bible, the claims about the Bible are true or false. So are we almost there? You think we're there for the first one? The first question is this. Well, the first claim is this. There are more stars in the galaxy than trees on earth. There are more stars in the galaxy than trees on earth. Is that true or false? Okay, we've got a lot of true. Okay, three falses. Well... The falses have it, my friends. NASA estimates that there are about 100 billion, between 100 billion and 400 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy. But according to a paper in the Journal of Nature, there are more than 3 trillion trees on Earth. 
Okay, next one. Is this fact or fiction? Okay, this is a good one. A chicken lived without a head for 18 months. Okay. <laughs> True or false? Let's see how you go with this one. Okay. A lot of skeptics. Okay, but some people are, you know, are true believers. <laughs> well, the trues have it, apparently. Apparently, chickens don't have a lot of, uh, in the back of their skull. Most of their brains are concentrated in the back of their skull. And therefore, apparently, a decapitated chicken can survive for quite a while, living just off its nerve endings. And there's actually an example, Mike the Headless Chicken, probably the most famous example. He, uh, the, his owner, Lloyd Olson chopped his head off in 1945, but his chicken didn't die. It, uh, the family kept him around and dropped food, apparently, and water directly into his esophagus. Bit gruesome, isn't it? Uh, but it finally gave out after 18 months. Now, that is one that I actually checked on Google Fact Checker, and it came up true as well, so it must be true. Here's another one. Is it fact or fiction that honey never expires? You honey eaters with 20-year-old jars in your cupboard or maybe longer, you might, might be able to speak from experience, but is it true or false? Okay, well, we, we're, we're almost equally balanced, aren't we? Oh, no, oh, nudging up. Well, apparently it's true. Uh, honey has a perfect chemical composition that m makes it never spoil. And 5,000-year-old uh, honey has actually been found, uh, and um, apparently it's perfectly edible, if you're willing to test it. <laughs> Don't believe the scientists. No, you test it. Oh, you go first. Okay, uh, is it fact or fiction that we use only 10% of our brain? Oh! Wow. Well, we are conflicted, aren't we, this morning? I don't know. We're we using our brains to test this one out? Well, we are evenly matched on this. Well, the fact is, apparently, most of our brain is constantly working. So to sense, uh, we use it to sense, process, think, move, and even dream. And so even in your sleep, at night, your brain is still, your whole brain is, is still hard at work. Okay, the next one, Oxford University is older than the Aztec Empire. Okay, Oxford University is older than the Aztec Empire. I'm sure you've got those dates in your mind from history. Okay, well, we've got, we've got uh, a few, um, maybe a few historians in our, in our midst. Well, maybe not, because apparently it's true that Oxford University is older because the Aztec Empire was founded in 1428 and Oxford University was founded in 1096. And lastly, the final one, we're not going very well. <laughs> Let's see how you go on this last one. Baby carrots were invented in 1986. Baby carrots were invented in 1996. Well, I'm glad there's some sort of, well, okay. There's a few cons conspiracy theorists in our church, I think. 
But apparently, this is actually actually an unfair one because apparently it's true and false. Uh, Baby carrots were originally not actually baby carrots. They were just chopped up and trimmed normal carrots. In fact, a farmer by the name of Mike Urosek invented them in 1986 as a way to use misshapen carrots. But now, apparently, baby carrots are specially grown for their variety, for their smallness in size and their sweetness. So there you go. (laughs) How did we go? (laughs) I don't think we went that well. In fact, uh, it's just as well we're looking at facts and claims about the Bible this morning. Hopefully we can do better with that. So today there are lots of claims about the Bible in regard to its historicity, um, its accuracy and its truthfulness. Uh, A lot of claims that are not true, but just accepted Uh, as truth unquestioningly. For example, the well-known actor uh, Ian McKellen, who played Gandalf in uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, he spoke his doubts about the Bible, Bible's accuracy and truthfulness when he said, I've often thought the Bible should have a disclaimer in the front saying, this is fiction. Uh, Richard Dawkins, the well-known evolutionary biologist and prominent atheist, also made his views clear when he said that the Bible is a chaotically cobbled together anthology of disjointed documents composed, revised, translated, distorted and improved by hundreds of anonymous authors, editors and copyists unknown to us and mostly unknown to each other spanning nine centuries. Now, you you might disagree with McKellen and Dawkins, as I do, but unfortunately, their views, uh, these views that they uh, sort of tell us are not just their own views. And I'm sure that you've heard similar views from people at work or uni or even school. Um, And perhaps you might even have some niggling doubts this morning yourself about about a uh, a, a lot of things about the Bible. There have been a lot of uh, criticism aimed at the Bible that sows doubt in people's minds, doesn't it? About whether you can believe it, whether you can can actually follow it. And uh, you might be, you might like, you might um, like me cringe when you hear these sorts of claims made about the Bible. But you also might be unsure how you should respond. What, what should I say? What do I do? I know the answer to these things. And so these claims can also make us doubt and make us question what we think about the Bible. And if we doubt the truthfulness or the accuracy of the Bible, what does that do? Well, it then goes on and impacts how we engage with it, doesn't it? It it impacts whether you're going to listen to what it says, whether you're going to actually put into practice what it says, even especially those tough things. Oh, well, it's just someone's idea, perhaps. Because of this, I want to tackle some common claims about the Bible this morning that are stated as truth and as fact, but which are fiction and myth. And so the first one of these is that I want to look at is the claim that the true Bible and its original meaning have been lost because it's been translated from one language to another, to another, to another. And so the main uh, thought behind this claim is that the original Bible and the original message of the Bible have been lost because they've been translated 
you know, sort of consecutively from one language and from that language into another and then into another and then into another. And so the, the thought process of this claim is that the, uh, the translation process is a bit like that game you used to play in school. Remember that broken telephone or, or whispers that uh, used to play in a school camp where you'd sort of line 10 people up and then you'd give this first person over here a message and then that person would pass the message on to the next person and they'd pass it on to the next person and they'd pass it on to the next person and then finally the last person would get the message and then they'd speak it out and then we'd all have a good laugh because guess what? It was completely unintelligible or completely different to the message that the first person received. Is that how the Bible's been translated? We can confidently say that this is a false claim about the Bible. You see, the, the original manuscripts, uh, the, originally the Bible, when people wrote the Bible, they wrote it down in three languages, in Hebrew, in Greek, and in Aramaic. And so the Old Testament was mainly written in Hebrew and the New Testament in Greek with some Aramaic in it. And so the Bibles that we use today, the Bibles that we have, the physical ones or the ones we even have on our phones, you know, the NIV or the, the King James or the NRSV, all of those Bibles that we have, they've been translated directly from those original languages. And they're not translations of translations of translations. And uh, what is true of the translations that we read today, such as our English Bibles, is in fact our translations are getting better and more accurate, not less. Because actually we're, we're understanding more about the language and about the culture and about those sort of times that they were written in. So this means that the claim that the true Bible's been lost in translation is untrue. And we should reject it. Second, another claim is that the Bible's been changed to suit someone's own ends. You know, the, the scribe or the copyist's own sort of thoughts, what they want to see happen. Now, it's true that, uh, that the early Bibles, they're actually all, after we, they wrote the original ones, they would have all been written by hand, the original ones. But then the subsequent copies were all also written by hand and then distributed and this was a long and painstaking task. Can you imagine writing out a Bible by hand? They didn't have Tipex. Oh, you know, probably you know, make a mistake and then have to get another papyrus. Start again. That's what I'd be doing. Because they were painstakingly aware that they needed to make these copies accurate. And so the main... the uh, the, uh, the, uh, the idea, the main idea behind this change claim is that some scribes, for some reason of their own, change what they are writing to suit their own ends. And so today, for example, it's hard for modern people to believe in miracles, uh, particularly a lot of miracles that we see in the Bible. But when the Bible was first written, or when, over those centuries, when the people at that time widely believed in the supernatural. And so having Jesus do lots of miracles might have been seen as quite advantageous and because they would have seen that, well, this encourages more people to believe. And so the argument goes with the claim that the Bible has been changed is that some editor or some scribe changed elements in a story to make it 
to make things look better, to make Jesus perhaps look better. And so, for example, we might, we might look at the story of Jesus walking on water. And um, some people today might say, oh, well, that, that's been changed. Of course it's been changed. I mean, no one walks on water. And so the original story must have had Jesus swimming past that boat, for sure, or running to Capernaum. That's how he got there. And so, you know, a bit, uh, bit of rubbing out, a bit of riding in, that he actually walked on past on water. And so the claim then is that the editor spiced up the story so that it showed Jesus performing this miracle. Now, what's the trouble with that? Well, the trouble with a claim like that is the trouble with the claim that the Bible's been changed is that there's actually no evidence to support it. In all the ancient manuscripts that we have of Mark's gospel, Jesus has always said to be walking past the disciples' boat on water. But how can we be confident that, that some shifty editor didn't make that change? Well, one very good reason we can, be, we can be very confident in the integrity of the New Testament, including the Gospels, is that they were actually written so close to the time of Jesus' death and resurrection. You see, Paul's letters were all written within 20 years of Jesus' death. That's not very long. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke, were written between 30 to 60 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. And the Gospel of John was written within 65 years of Jesus' death and resurrection. So what does this mean? Let's get those cogs going in our heads. What it means is that, that much of the New Testament was written and distributed while eyewitnesses to the events of Jesus' life and ministry were still alive. And so they would have been able to read those texts or listen to those texts, more likely, these accounts, and they would have been able to spot if an event was made up or embellished. If it was, and someone spoke about that, that would have been, been really a challenge to its truthfulness. And then it would have greatly impacted the spread of the gospel, the spread of the message. It would have impacted whether people actually become followers of Jesus, which you know is not the fact. You see, the gospel is spread like wildfire. And therefore, we can have confidence that what we read in the Bible has not been changed to suit anyone's agenda. And this is a false claim. And we should reject it. And we should challenge it when we hear that claim. So if the Bible's not been deliberately changed by shifty editors, someone might then turn to another claim and say, well, oh, it's got lots of mistakes in it. And therefore, it can't be trusted. Now, there's no denying that there are mistakes in the Bible. Oh, did I say that? There are no denying. The pastor has admitted this morning that there are mistakes. It's hard for handwritten documents, copies, not to have mistakes in them. But what we need to know is actually the nature of those mistakes. You see, scholarly research shows that mistakes, the mistakes in the Bible are mostly minor and they don't alter the overall message or the meaning of the Bible. And these mistakes, they're mainly spelling errors, misspelling people's names. Sometimes uh, parts of sentences are dropped out. 
And I want to show you an example of that this morning. See, we've got this passage here, Luke 8.43 in the New International Version. And we know this story. It's actually taken from the story where Jesus gets out of the boat and he's on his way to heal Jairus' daughter. And on the way, a woman who is, had this bleeding issue touches his shoulder and she's healed. And so the 8.43 says, And a woman was there who'd been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. Now you see that A up there? That's a footnote marker. And so if you go down the bottom of your page in your Bible, you'll read at the bottom of the page um, that uh, the bottom of the NIV page will say, many manuscripts also have, and she had spent all she had on doctors. So what, what this means is that they found some really early manuscripts that included this part of the sentence and they found other manuscripts that didn't have that part of the sentence. So you might ask yourself, well, which one's right? Obviously, at some point in time, a scribe dropped part of the sentence of that verse, most likely by mistake. But there's no attempt to cover it up. This is not sort of, you know, the third edition of the Da Vinci Code sort of series movies where there's some sort of giant plot to, you know, uh, take over the world because it's actually written there in the footnote of the NIV for us to see. And there's openness and honesty about the scholarship that's gone on. But what's commonly understood by the vast majority of biblical scholars is that the differences in the manuscripts, the errors, if you want to call them that, that you don't alter the overall meaning of any of the accounts of the Bible. They're not deal breakers, friends. We can therefore have confidence in the Bible's accuracy. The scribes who copied the Bible were skilled people and did their job painstakingly to ensure that they would be copied accurately. You see, they didn't just believe what they were copying was some sort of book. They actually believed that they were copying what is called, uh, what, what was God-breathed, as Paul calls it in 2 Timothy 3.16, which is another way of saying that God inspired the authors who wrote the Bible. And so these copyists, these scribes, they believe that the Bible itself is a sacred writing and therefore to, uh, they, they took great, great care in what they copied. And we know that these scribes were skilled because ancient manuscripts that we have from, from very close to when, the, uh, to when they were written, they align accurately with the text that we have today. So let's imagine, for example, the process of, the, the process of copying happened Let's imagine how it happened a little, for a little bit. And let's, uh, let's sort of then wonder, well, how, how can we know that the Bible that we use today are really good copies of those original documents? How do we know that? Well, I've actually written uh, and edited five books. And so let's take one of those books. I've got one here this morning. It's called Wisdom of the Yao People. These are a book of traditional Yao proverbs. Okay, They're not biblical proverbs. They're actually wisdom of the Yao themselves. Now, um, let's say that there's no photocopiers have been invented, even up until today. And so, um, but uh, 
But uh, what happens is that my son, who was given a copy of this, he looks at his copy, it's the only copy around, and he's, he knows that his copy is actually really battered and, and worn out because he's been reading it so much. And uh, so he becomes worried that it's soon going to be lost forever. So what does he do? He actually sits down with his pen and he hand writes, hand copies this book out, word for word. And uh, so his copy now is the latest copy of this edition. And that copy is in circulation for another 20 years. And then his daughter finds this copy and thinks, well, this is about to be worn out. I should make another copy. And so she sits down and she copies that out. Now let's imagine that this cycle of copying and wearing out goes on for a thousand years. Okay, so it's now uh, the year 3023. That's 1,000 years from now. That's 50 generations of people that have come and gone and we've got 50 copies of copies that have gone on. Now imagine that a a debate starts that... uh, that there are claims that the current copy of the wisdom of the Yao is nothing like the original copy. How would you show that no significant changes have taken place over that thousand years since the original book was published? Well, you might say, well, that's pretty tricky. Well, it just so happens that people began digging in the area in Kensington where I lived. They're about to build this massive skyscraper, okay? I don't know how many stories skyscrapers will be in 3023, but but what they did, because they're an ethical uh, building company, just like all ethical building companies and mining companies in this country, they decided that they would be responsible and do a thorough archaeological search of the site in case there was something sacred there. And in the course of their digging, guess what? They found sections of my original book in my old crumpler bag along with my Mikey card. (laughs) They couldn't work out what the Mikey card was, but they knew what the book was. And so they they then could take these sections of of my original book and they could compare them with the latest version that they've got and see if any changes had been made. That would do it, wouldn't it? Well, that's exactly what has been done with the Bible, folks. You see, over the years, over the centuries, fragments and scrolls and different parts of the Bible have been found, both New and Old Testament, all over the Middle East. And these are used to compare with our modern-day translations. So thousands of papyrus were found on an ancient garbage dump in Egypt. And uh, 35 portions, ancient portions of the New Testament were found. And in 1947, an Arab boy, while herding his uh, sort of goats or sheep or whatever along the Dead Sea, he discovered a, a cave in which large pots were in them, clay pots, and in those pots they found lots of scrolls that were filled with um, portions of the Old Testament dating back 2,000 years. So when scholars compare these ancient documents that they found, With the Bibles that we have today, they find that the ancient scribes did a marvellously accurate job. So when it comes to the myth of the Bible being changed or there there being major mistakes in it that make it inaccurate due to copying errors, we can say that's just plain wrong. And we should reject those claims as false. 
once you've worked through the evidence showing that the meaning hasn't been lost in translation, nor have editors changed things to suit themselves, nor have there been major mistakes, there's only one claim left to examine, which is that the Bible is just a well-orchestrated lie, that it's some sort of hoax to dupe people. Well, the Bible is a unique document. One of the reasons why it's unique is because it actually contains 66 books, separate books and letters written by different people who have been inspired by God. And so therefore to claim that it's just a well-preserved lie would actually mean that there's this giant conspiracy that took place over multiple centuries, which when you think about it, sounds rather preposterous. But let's look quickly uh, at a couple of other angles to deal with the shallowness of this claim before we, for our close this morning. First, let's consider what major characters of, of the Bible say about the Bible. King David, who wrote the Psalms, Jeremiah the prophet, Jesus and the apostles, they all mention in their own writings, uh, they all state that, they, that the Old Testament, that what they received was God's sacred message to people. So they believed it. For example, Jeremiah 1.7, Jeremiah the prophet says, speaking the words of the Lord, he wrote down and told the Israelites what he wrote down were God's words. He says, you must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. So these weren't Jeremiah's words. These are words that he received from God. Throughout his ministry, Jesus constantly quoted also from the Old Testament and he drew on its authority to reveal who he was and what he was on about. For Jesus, the Old Testament was true. And we can see an example of that where he challenges the Pharisees in Mark 7 because they were valuing tradition higher than, uh, th- than uh, God's word that was given to them through prophets like Isaiah and Moses. Jesus also says that he'd come not to change one iota of the law, but to fulfill it. And so also the apostles, the disciples who became apostles, also believed all of the Old Testament scriptures. They believed that they were a divine message from God. In fact, Paul calls them God-breathed, as I mentioned before in 2 Timothy 3.16. What does that mean, God-breathed? It's a kind of funny way to talk about the Bible, isn't it? Well, what it means is that God is the source of them. God has inspired people to write down what they have experienced, seen and been told by God, so that other people like ourselves today, we can grasp them. The Apostle Peter also believed in the reliability and truthfulness of the Old Testament Scriptures. And he says in 2 Peter 1.19 that the messages written by the prophets are completely reliable and that they don't stem from a prophet's own mind or from their interpretation of things. The messages they wrote down were messages that God gave them to speak through his spirit. So when it comes to wandering, sorry, when it comes to wondering about the truth of the New Testament, we can also believe that the New Testament writers wrote truthfully about what they saw and what they heard and what was revealed. But some people will say at this point, well, why are there four Gospels? You know, why are there four different Gospels? Isn't that proof? Because they're different. 
Well, I, th- I think that actually scholars say that the fact is that we have four Gospels is actually not a weakness, but a strength. You see, they each give us views of Jesus' life and ministry from different perspectives. If the accounts were exactly the same, you would know that they were cooked. In scholarly work, they know when something's a forgery, when, it's, you know, the, 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 when a theory's been cooked up is when it's actually too uniform. They are different. The Gospels are different because they are views of Jesus from different people. Two of the Gospels were written by people who were eyewitnesses to all the events. And the other two Gospels were written by people who gathered all the information they had about Jesus uh, from other eyewitnesses. Matthew and John were the authors of the Gospels in their names. They were actually Jesus' disciples. They lived with him and heard his, his teaching for three years. Mark is believed to have been a scribe for the Apostle Peter And so that's why a lot of the uh, accounts in Mark's gospel, uh, they are seen through Peter's perspective. And Luke, he was a physician who who drew on various sources to give us his account. Luke is actually a real scholar. In fact, if you open the book of Luke and you read the first few verses, he tells you how he goes about his investigation. It's great stuff. Let's look at it. He says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who, were, by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. You see, this guy, Luke, he wants to know the truth. He doesn't want to be duped himself, and he doesn't want to dupe anyone. Which is why he first did his own research. And when he saw that what he researched was true, he told his friend Theophilus, And then he published it so that others could know. And we're so grateful to Luke for that. The Apostle Paul also makes it clear that he was not drawing on his own theories or philosophies when writing his letters. He says in 1 Corinthians 15.3 that he's actually drawing on an ancient tradition, which is of gathering evidence and then checking everything that he gathered against Scripture. And he says this, he says, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to Scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Now I'm an academic, might have appeared a little that way this morning. I don't usually preach this way. Um, and I appreciate these scholarly arguments and it's important that we have them. But there's one final argument that I want to leave with you this morning, which for me is as valid, if not more important, to counter the claim that the New Testament or even that the whole Bible is a lie. And this is it. That many of the people who wrote the New Testament and even the Old Testament 
They died for what they wrote. See, we know that many of the New Testament writers were persecuted and executed for proclaiming and writing about what they had seen and what they'd heard. Therefore, it would make no sense, would it, to write and defend something if you knew that it was a lie and if you knew that you'd embellished it. You'd fess up, wouldn't you? Just as the guillotine was about to come down. Oh, no, I remember. Even Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, when he's actually defending his belief in the resurrection of Jesus, he says straight up, and we should read it, and we should, we should dwell on it. He says, if Christ has not been raised to life, then guess what? All our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. And what's more, people who believe that he did rise to life should be pitied more than anyone else if it isn't true. He wasn't trying to dupe anyone. We know that some people lie when they get some sort of advantage from it. But would a person lie and write something untrue and continue to defend it in prison, knowing full well that it would result in their gruesome death in a very short time? I couldn't imagine any sane person doing that. Therefore, the only reasonable explanation is that these people told and wrote the truth about what they had seen and heard and what was revealed to them. And, and this should lead us to be, also believe that the accounts and letters we have in our Bibles today were written by faithful people and copied and passed down to us by honest, skilled and faithful people whose one desire was to glorify God. Friends, at the end of the day, you have every reason to reject these false claims about the Bible and you have every reason to have confidence that the Bible is trustworthy. It is an accurate message that has been given to us by God through his servants. I think that a lot of claims made about the Bible are not just because people uh, have evidence that they have been changed or think they do, or that there are mistakes. I think that primarily at the bottom of it all is that people don't agree with the message. It's not that they're not, it's not that they think that it's been changed, but actually they don't like the message. And there's a huge difference between something being untrue and something that we don't like, isn't there? I don't like hearing that too much saturated fat in my diet is going to clog up my arteries <laughs> as I think about getting one of those sausages. But closing my mind to the message or saying that that's untrue or that's a conspiracy, isn't it, by the pharmaceutical companies wanting to sell us drugs to lower our cholesterol. Now, I might think all those things, but it's not going to change the truth to that claim. So friends, I want to encourage you to open your minds to, and believe that the Bible is God's message to people and that it can enable you to know God more and, and to know what is good and what is pleasing and what glorifies him and what is life-giving and where hope is in this life and where hope is in for the next life. Friends, where else will you get a message of hope today? Where else will you hear truth, sometimes painful truth, 
that will save you, that will lead you to Jesus, that will lead you to being transformed. Let me leave you with this passage from the book of Hebrews. The writer of the book of Hebrews tells us where we can find this truth when he says, for the word of God is alive and active. It's a living word, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even a dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. But for the word of God to be effective, we need to read it and we need to listen to it, friends. Can't just leave it up there on our shelf. So we need to be a community of Jesus followers who read and listen to God's word so that we can know what is good and pleasing to God. Friends, won't you take it up? Won't you take it up and read it? You see, that's what Augustine heard a young girl saying one day when he was passing. He'd been living an ungodly life, just living for himself. And one day he heard a young girl singing that and it challenged him, take it up and read it. And that's what I want to challenge you this morning. I want to leave that with your friends. I want to encourage you to take up the word of God and to let it be a guide for your life. Take it up and digest it. Let it inform you. Listen to it. Meditate on it. Tell it to others. Talk about it with your friends. Won't you take it and read it? Won't you begin each day to let it nourish you so that you can grow just like you need food? The truth and accuracy of the Bible is there. What remains for us is to ask the Holy Spirit to give us, to create in us a hunger for that word and a hunger for Jesus so that we can know him more and know how we can follow him and be like him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word that it is a light and a lamp to our feet, that you've given it to us. It's an amazing thing that a God would communicate in that way and you've communicated to us in so many ways through your written word through the word Jesus and through the spirit and we take all of those today and we pray Lord that we would be people who hunger for you and that we would pick up these, this word of God and we would become people who listen to it and become doers of your word I pray for that work of your spirit in us this morning Amen